This New America NYC event took place on Tuesday, March 1st, 2016, and is titled How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity and features Douglas Rushkoff, Professor of Media Theory and Digital Economics, CUNY, Queens, and author Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, and Georgia Bullen, Director of Technology Projects, Open Technology Institute, New America. Douglas and I were talking a little bit about the book beforehand, and I, one of the things you were saying to me was that this book is different from your other books. And I was wondering if you could talk about why and how and who you're sort of, what your goal is with um, throwing rocks at the Google bus. Well, I don't know if it started out different, but I mean, most of the books I write, they kind of end up meaning something to people about 10 years after they come out, you know? <laughs> Which is cool in a way, because it means I got foresight or I'm prescient or something, but it sucks in a way because the conversation I want to have at that time, I can't have. Right. And then 10 years later, when I'm kind of done with that conversation or not to something else, people want to talk about it. So then I'm trying to dig up what, what, what did all that mean. Um, this book, I started to, I mean, I was thinking about this book uh, two or three books ago, but I didn't really have an answer. I was, I was getting increasingly concerned about why things weren't working out quite like they could be or should be, you know, why were, was digital technology not yielding the, you know, the burning man-like rave that I had imagined society becoming in the early 90s. Um, and I couldn't put my finger on, on exactly what it was. I understood that uh, uh, young developers were taking too much money too early and then having to change their companies in order to deliver to their VC what they wanted, 100x return, but killing the actual idea. And uh, so I started writing about that and I, I decided when I was gonna write this book, I, un I understood what the problem was, but I didn't understand what the solution was. So I said, look, if I get a year or so to write a book, I will figure out not only what's wrong, but how to fix it. And you know? for, since most people haven't uh, read the book, I'm guessing because it came out today, except for the handful of us who got advanced copies, uh, do you want to talk about what the problem, like the, what's your sort of soundbite that you're aiming for of getting people to understand the problem? Well, the main problem is that we, uh, in a nutshell, I mean, this has got to be unpacked, I guess, but in a nutshell, what we've done is we've optimized the digital economy for the accumulation of capital instead of optimizing it for the velocity of money. And the latter, the velocity of money, is much more consonant with the distributed architecture of the internet itself and would lead to a whole lot more happiness than, than what we've got. You know, the, the easiest way of understanding the problem is that there's all these great developers who are willing to disrupt one industry or another. You know, they'll disrupt publishing or disrupt music. But then as soon as they've got their idea kind of down, they run to the equivalent of daddy at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, and they surrender their disruptive idea to another operating system that they act as if it isn't even there. They assume that venture capital and an IPO and acquisition and the stock market and 100x returns, that that's just this pre-existing condition of nature, that that's the real system that we have to somehow uh, uh, 
succumb to. And so you look at something, you know, when, when I saw, and these are friends of mine. I mean, we all have friends now who are billionaires, which is strange in itself. But the, the, I saw the founders of Twitter on the cover of the Wall Street Journal the day they had their IPO. And under each of their faces was the number of billion dollars that each of them were worth. And I'm thinking here, I know two different people who are worth over $5 billion each, but I found myself feeling sorry for them because I realized that these are the guys, they disrupted you know, Visa and MasterCard with PayPal, originally anyway. They disrupted journalism with, with Twitter. And now here they were surrendering what they had done and surrendering all that disruption to the biggest, baddest industry on the block. You know, because when they let you ring the bell at the NASDAQ Stock Exchange and clap for you, it's not because you've done something disruptive, right? It's, be it's because you've confirmed the primacy of corporate capital to the whole scheme. And you've, you've, made, you've enslaved yourself and your company now to pivoting towards a 100x or a 1,000x return and away from whatever it did. So now we're here with Twitter, one of my favorite apps, by the way, Twitter, a 140-character app that makes $500 million a quarter, and that's considered an abject failure by Wall Street. That's a failure, and the company now has to go become what? They got a video, advertising, blah, blah, and where goes Twitter? You know, and so what I wanted to do was figure out what could they have done and what could we do to have a development path that leads uh, that leads to something other than just magnifying this growth imperative, which is driving us off a cliff anyway. So, and we were talking about this, and you talk a little bit about what companies can do and, and what individuals can do, and I mean, there's a role for government to play in all of this as well, right, as a, as a public policy person. Like, uh -huh. what should we, how do we incentivize change? Like, this, if the system is in place, how are we going to start to take down the system? Well, I hate to sound libertarian here, but I will for a moment, because I'm not. But one thing the government can do is change the nature of their regulations. Right? I, I'm not saying deregulate the marketplace so that Wall Street can go crazy, or deregulate so that the rich can have rich. What I'm saying is don't, right now, Regulations aren't really being made in the interest of people anyway. The people who write the regulations are the very largest players in the industry. So when uh, a simple non-tech example would be, uh, there was a big uh, uh, lead paint scare in the toy industry a bunch of years ago. A bunch of Dora toys or something had red paint in it. They were all outsourced from China. They came in, they had lead paint. So what do we do? Well, we're gonna form a commission, get the leaders of industry together with the leaders of government and come up with regulations to prevent this from happening again. And the regulations they came up with was a testing process that required $40,000 per toy that you're gonna release on the market. What is small toy manufacturer supposed to do with that? If you make handcrafted toy trains that you want to sell to a toy store, how do, you, how do you participate in that? Well, you can't. So industry used their own mistake, their own problem of big industry as an excuse to regulate the marketplace so that it would advantage them even more. Right? So regulation right now favors the, favors the largest players on the block, right? The reason why Uber can move into New York is because they have a war chest. The investment in Uber is not paying for the app. 
the investment in Uber is paying to deregulate the marketplace in their favor. So that's one. The other biggie, and it's a simple tax shift, is, I mean, I, the, the simple way to say it is, right now, in the, the way our, I sound like Bernie here. Um, <laughs> right now, our tax should code. Write, should people write you in for some tax? No, okay. our tax. <laughs> the simple problem with our tax code is that capital gains are taxed much, much less than real earnings, than dividends, right? So what is that? If you're thinking of it as a computer program, and now you're biasing it so that people who make money by simply having money don't have to pay taxes, but people who make money by earning money have to pay taxes. What are you building into that system? Right? If you want to optimize your economy for the accumulation of capital, for the extraction of poker chips from the playing board into the accounts of shareholders, then optimize it that way. If you want to optimize the economy for the circulation of capital through the, through the society so that people can create and exchange value between each other, then you want to reverse that bias. You want, to, you want taxes on dividends and earnings to be really low and taxes on capital accumulation to be high. So how do we make that happen? Like, how do we actually get people to change? And what can, I mean, what could people who are here do in day-to-day -day choices or um, in choices of, with their startups that they're working on? Well, I mean, the easy way to disempower the sitting bags of capital that are there is to try, in some ways, try to ignore them, which is hard to do. You create an application with two friends, and you can, build it pretty much on a laptop, and then use a scalable server. Even go to Amazon Cloud, I don't care. Give them, go to something scalable. You don't need 10 millions of dollars from Y Combinator to get to the next level. Once you bring those people in, now you're in a different game. Now you're no longer building a business for the prosperity of that business. Now you're building a business in order to sell it. And so if your goal is to create a thriving, sustainable business, then think twice about selling it. Right? Don't sell it, you know, hold on to it. So that's sort of number one. Uh, as individuals, it's really, I mean, as consumers, you can make way better choices about how you buy things. You know, it's as simple as if someone buys my book, from a local bookseller instead of from Amazon. And I mean their local bookseller. Now there is money that is circulating in their community. That's a dollar more. It's a dollar more for that book, but you're gonna see that dollar circulate through your community five times. So you're gonna get that dollar five more times than you would if you spent it on Amazon and it goes up into a share price. So you're spending it at a company that's taking a loss on the book in order to create a platform monopoly in publishing so they can hop over into what's called another vertical and take that over, right? They don't care about the books. They care about the monopoly. So it's a very different, a very different thing. You can, if you're organizing a company, consider how can your company make everyone who touches your company wealthy, right? The traditional corporate industrial tactic is to look at everybody else as a resource to extract value from them. But if you're extracting value from your customer base, eventually they get too poor to be your customer. 
That's the problem that Walmart is having now. The towns that Walmart has gone into are going bankrupt. They're losing their customers, so now Walmart's closing stores and the towns are having to figure out, hey, how do we rebuild a local infrastructure? How do we rebuild, how do we create a, a drugstore and, a, and, a, and a, a bookstore and everything else that we need to replace this big vacuum that came to our community and wiped out our, uh, uh, our connective tissue? Uh, companies can start thinking about communicating with their shareholders differently. So instead of being beholden to the growth of the share price, start telling your shareholders they're gonna get dividends. They're going to earn real money for, what, for, for owning a, a portion of your company. Create companies as platform cooperatives where your workers are owners in the company. There's a competitor to Uber that's just gonna be opening in New York called Juno in a few weeks. And it's the same basic idea as Uber except they pay the cabbies more, and the drivers own 50% of the company. Now, what does it mean when the drivers own 50% of the company? It means that when that company eventually pivots, as they all will, to mechanical cars driven by computers, you haven't done the research and development for the thing that will replace you. You've done the research and development for the company that you own. Right, so now the drivers are going out doing your work, your job has been replaced, but your income hasn't been taken away because you own the thing. So these are, these are really, they sound complicated, but they're really simple things to do. They're just the basic steps. You have to think of things. We're in a digital age. You have to think of the, the, the mechanisms that you're, that you're using and that the instruments that you're putting into place, you have to think of them like programs that are gonna keep going, that are going to have uh, operating principles and bias them towards circulation, bias them towards making people wealthy. I promise you, if you have a business that's making its customers wealthy, that's making its suppliers wealthy, that's making its competitors wealthy, they're gonna keep you around. Right? But it's just not the way we think. Oh, make other people wealthy? Yes, make them wealthy so they can buy stuff from you. you know, and it's not, uh, it's not rocket science to do that. And I mean, to that point, it's, that's another policy suggestion, right? Building in mechanisms for other types of businesses, because cooperative businesses of that model that you're describing aren't actually possible in a lot of um, in a lot of places. So that's another. Right. I mean, luckily, there's things like B Corps and multi-purpose corps. There's a lot of alternative corporate structures that you can adopt now that let you value things other than your fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders. You know, it's it's. Uh, from an economics perspective, it's understanding that when you take in capital and you let a venture capitalist be in charge of your company, then the only contribution he's going to value is capital. But if you understand economics, you understand there's three main factors of production. Capital is one of them, but land and labor are the other two. And this is back to Adam Smith and any any economist, any libertarian will tell you, land, labor, and capital. So how do we value the land and labor again? Right? That's by building it into the core of the company to understand that there are three kinds of contributions and all three have to be rewarded by the company. You can't just look at a company as venture capital that's extracting value from land and labor or you end up with a world that's gonna die and with people with no jobs. That's, I don't, it's interesting. Like you mentioned Y Combinator earlier, and I, you know, a lot of people, a portion of why the people are going to them are for the VC funding, but it's also for the mentorship models. Because there's a question I would have of, does everybody know how to do this, right? And I, I think the answer is probably that they don't. Mm -hmm. But so if they're not, if some of what needs to change is actually the advice they're getting, like how do we build a better, um, 
support system for changing the thinking around how business happens? Like, are there evangelists that exist that we can start to tell their stories more? Does it need to be a special, different type of incubator that actually focuses on this type of model? Like, how can we change the, the community around? I mean, um, let's do it. it. <laughs> um, you know, it's part of what Civic Hall is for. It's part of what, why we're here. It's part of why I wrote this book to say, here's a manual yeah. to begin. So understand what went wrong and understand how to, how to do it right. I mean, there's people around. Talk to Trevor Schultz at the New School, who's starting a whole organization on, is he here? Oh, here. Um, for platform, platform cooperatives with Nathan, Nathan Schneider. Talk to uh, Michelle Bowens at the Peer to Peer Foundation. Go to p2pfoundation.net and you'll see tons of articles. Talk to um, Robinhood in Finland. Talk to Inspiral in New Zealand. I mean, there are a lot of groups out there. A lot of them are looking at, at uh, blockchain even. A lot of those folks are sort of looking at how can we do authentication in a peer-to-peer -peer way. I mean, they get those, those efforts get sidetracked really fast because people invest in them and they go, oh, Bitcoins, Bitcoins, I gotta make money, you know, the Winkle, once you see the Winklevoss brothers anywhere, you know, stay away. Um, they did a bunch of uh, investing in Bitcoin. But no, there are, um, there are mentors out there, but honestly, I feel like um, a lot of people know in their gut what they're doing right. It's not rocket science, the, the young people that when they're in their dorm room in Stanford or Columbia and they come up with that idea, I feel like so many of them would be better off with $50,000 and no mentorship than $5 million in the mentorship they're getting. And the mentorship they're getting, they're not dumb. They're smart people, the VC guys. They're smart, but they're smart at doing a very particular thing, which is bringing something to exit, right? Bringing something to, a, to a, an exit event. And I mean, gosh, I've got friends in here. You know, David Benham is in here right now with, with, a, with a product called Ready, you know, which has just gotten away from venture capital. And now he's like, oh, we can just do this thing. You know, it used to be called bootstrapping, but, uh, or these days they call it bootstrapping, but it used to just be called building a business. You build a business, you get some revenue, you use some of that revenue to live and some of that revenue to invest back in the company. It's a slower growth thing, but when you grow slower, so much easier to develop a product that your customers like because then you can see your customer reaction. You can use good old-fashioned quarters and semi-annual feedback and adjust and change. You're not stuck on the clock of 18 months. I've got 18 months to turn this thing around. That's not fair to any business that's in the real world. Some of it probably is that people don't see these things, right? I mean, I think of the, of the initiatives that you just mentioned, how many people in the room know of one of them, have heard of one of them? Okay, that's about 10 hands, two. Well, you've heard of a more, lot of more them. You've heard of, of Lumio as a great uh, decision-making tool that came out of General Assembly. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of them you won't hear of, right? Just like a lot of the best candidates for president you probably never heard of. You know, we heard of Trump, you know? You know so it's like, just, just because you don't know them doesn't mean they're not great. And the fact is, a lot of them are local. There is nothing wrong with creating a business that doesn't scale up. Not everything scales up. Scaling up is an artifact of the industrial age where you've got to become the one, the winner, the king of the hill. You can actually be one of many in your business. That's actually cool. There used to be these guilds. There were many people who built bridges and made houses and made shoes and they had guilds and they shared technologies and, and innovations with each other. And they understood that if everyone gets better, we're all doing better. They built a culture around what they did. You know, now it's as if you know, the economic term is the Gini number. 
the Gini, it's as if uh, uh, the Gini number is, is the number that if it's at zero, it means that everything's distributed everywhere. And if it goes to one, it means all the money has been scooped up by one player. It feels like the digital economy is structured so that there's gonna be one big winner. It's like at the poker game at the end of the night when the one guy gets all the chips. It's like, will it be Jeff Bezos? Will it be Mark Zuckerberg? Will it be uh, Sergey? You know, who's gonna get everything? And that's because they're so addicted to scale. And even in our, in our good lefty progressive world, it's like I have so many kids come up to me and they wanna create, I wanna create a platform that can aggregate all of the websites that are aggregating the people who are doing social change. Like, and everybody wants to do that because everybody wants to have the thing that frames the thing that frames the thing. And I, I get that that's, that's sort of industrial age thinking and it's not as much fun as just doing the thing locally. It's so hard in a world where we all want 20,000 Twitter followers and we all want the recognition, but the satisfaction you get in creating like Greenlight Bookstore in, in Greenpoint and having a community of people who love what you do that you're supporting becoming, Human-scaled economies are local. They just are. And when they're local, they necessarily respect land. When they're local, they necessarily respect labor because those are the people who are paying the taxes to put your kids to school. So you need everybody to be participating. It's so much more enjoyable. So sure, you can come up with some mechanisms that people can model in lots of different places. But um, in terms of having a, a satisfying business, you know, this is part of what we're retrieving in the digital age is a very almost medieval approach to business, you know, where it's part of my city, it's part of the place I live and I do something, you know. We make fun of people making artisanal beers and, you know, uh, you know heritage yams or whatever. But, <laughs> I mean, what do the wealthiest people do when they retire? They go and make beer and yams and orchids and stuff. That's actually fun to do. And if you can do it in a way that supports your community and they're doing something that supports you, you just start to see not all of it, but a larger percentage of your economic activity ends up taking place in a sphere between people on a, on a more local scale. And yeah, you're gonna still buy your iPhones from you know, Apple and multinational conglomerates, but it doesn't have to be the entire economy. It's interesting. I, Lumio is a good example. I was actually on the phone with Ben Knight from Lumio uh -huh. last week. Um, and he was telling me about what started as the Occupy movement in Taiwan, uh, mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of organizing on Lumio for that group. Um, and now a lot of them have actually, the government sort of had a turning point and was like, all right, we hear you. We're in. What do we need to do? And have hired a bunch of them. And so what you're seeing is actually these now activists are becoming government employees and starting to do process change internally. And I don't, it's hard for me to, I was listening to him and I was like, that sounds awesome. Like, how does that, how do we see something like that happen here? You know, we, there, there were inklings of it. I think some of it's still going on, uh, but it's less of the narrative that we're seeing at the moment, right? Especially today on like on an election day, but it's less, how do we change that? Or how do we find those local stories and get people paying attention to the, the local issues and the sort of local economy questions. Like, is that possible here? What needs to be that breaking point, I guess, is sort of the, the question. The attention-getting media that we currently employ are not the very best ones for telling the kinds of stories that you're talking about. In other words, the, the clickbait, you know, 
Donald Trump insulting black people is way better clickbait than general assembly tool employed for civic re-engagement in Thailand, you know? <laughs> but the people in Thailand where that app is being used end up having a lived experience that's different. You know, I, I'm actually becoming okay with national global media being the disconnected freak show that it is, as long as I've got a real life of actual connections with other people that is something else. I mean, there's a certain, what we're, the big picture of what we're doing is reasserting the human agenda. That's really what we're doing. I mean, the, 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 my, my bigger case here is to get people to join Team Human, you know, rather than Team Computer or Team Capitalism or Team System. We are mistaking the metrics that we've put on the wall for the betterment of humanity. And the way to get in touch with what's good for people really is on a local level. There's these good old-fashioned things like making eye contact with people. It's so rich. It's like such a weird thing to do if you've been online for so much of your life. Make eye contact with people. Sit in spaces with people. See how your town is actually functioning. You know, go to a, a, a school board meeting. Join a community-supported agriculture group. Set up a local currency in your town. I mean, there's so many things you can do. And no, you're not going to get, I mean, you might get some late night MSNBC, you know, small business innovation. You might get a little something. But in some ways, getting a lot of media attention for something, in some ways, is a reverse indicator. It's a reverse indicator because it means that in some way, it's, it, they've been able to frame it as part of industrialism, as, oh, this is going to scale up. This is going to work for everybody. The fact is things work differently in all different places. We all have lots of different models. Some of those models can be, can be uh, uh, you know, modeled and shared, but they're always going to be tweaked, and that's what you really want to be able to do. You know, the beauty of a digital age, this is the digits of a digital age, is the fingers, is that it's a hands-on thing. It can restore the human scale to stuff. And when you're restoring human scale, you start thinking less in terms of, oh, let's put this big shopping mall there, and rather, how are we going to create a circulation of, of currency between the business people in our community already? So, I mean, I, I don't mean to not answer your question, but I think... <laughs> The object of the game is not to get attention for the ideas. I mean, that's my job right now, right? I wrote this book. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to stump, and I'll fight, and hopefully some people will read it. That's what books were for, to disseminate. I like the Boy Scout manual was one of them. This is another one. You know, get it out there. Let people see it. It's as easy as a PDF. Right? The, the trap we don't want to get into is sort of the trap that Obama fell into after the, the, the stock market crash, is to think that, okay, business as usual, what do we do? I got to get a bank to lend money to a corporation to build a factory in that town so hire people and get them jobs. Uh-uh, that's the thing that just failed. What he should have done was sent a PDF to Lansing and say, here's how you set up a time bank. Here's how you set up a favor bank. Here's how you do local currency so that People understand if you have people with skills and people with needs, that's all you need for an economy. 
And that's all we used to need for an economy. And that's why in the book I go all the way back to 1100, the last time we had a free-form bazaar, a marketplace with market currencies that were only good for the day that were biased towards transaction. How do we get people the bread they need, the chickens they need, the shoes they need, and uh, to invest in the local bridge? That was what they were thinking, and they optimized their currency for that. The problem was really wealthy people were getting relatively less wealthy as the burgers, as the middle class rose. So they made local currencies illegal. You had to borrow money from the central bank. They made being in business for yourself illegal. They created the chartered monopoly, which became the corporation today. Chartered monopolies were defended by law. Today's platform monopoly is defended by technology, by, you know, las cucarachas entran pero no pueden salir kind of technology, meaning these are one-way technologies. Once you bring this technology into your business, into your life, it's really hard to get it out because you become dependent on it, right? They use what's called um, defensible outcomes. That's the startup term. You want defensible outcomes. That means people use what you've got but then can't go to something else, right? And that's not the way to do business. I mean, some of what you're getting at is actually, I mean, it seems to me like it's just at odds with the using, using technology to solve a problem. And, and one of the things I always think about when you look at something like Lumio, to come back to that example, the technology isn't super crazy, innovative, out there, or advanced. It's actually, uh, it's a pretty simple tool. And what it comes down to is people enforcing the rules of using that tool. Yeah. Right? So it's still about, it's, it is about the human interactions. It's nothing, it's just a... It's it an is. easy to use participatory Absolutely. Tool. You know, I'm not a techno-solutionist, as it were. I don't think there's a computer program we write, a new operating system that changes everything. There's not an app to fix this. You know, we can't just do an update overnight and then the economy and the government and everything works. It, it doesn't happen like that. But we have moved from a, a broadcast era, an electronic age, into a digital age. We're living in what, what McLuhan would call a digital media environment. And that doesn't mean digital just that we're going to all use digital tools, but it means that the, the way in which we make decisions is going to be informed by a more digital, programmatic, algorithmic sensibility. Right? And that's one that's really valuable to us. So yeah, these are simple human solutions. They're not complicated technologies. It's not a matter of better encryption. Right? It's a matter of better listening. You know, it's a matter of better connection, better contact. Yeah, it's, I always, uh, the thing I think is interesting is it's, right now we have such a focus on the tools solving the problem. So even when we tell the stories of where there are good things happening, we focus on the technology as opposed to the human interaction. Well, it's the perfect TED talk, right. yeah. Uh, whereas like what it's actually about is the tool facilitates getting people in a room together, right? And so part of what, even, I mean, taking Twitter as an example, part of what's interesting to see there is when people actually organize online to end up somewhere together to do something. Uh, which we still see a lot of, but I'm, I, I mean, how do you negotiate that with, how does, how does Twitter stay running, right? Like, they do have to figure something out to, to function. I, I mean, I guess people, they could ask for donations from people the same way. They could just go does. private, you know? It's really what they have to do, just get, get out from under their shareholders. They're more than, more than profitable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's kind of an, an easy one. It's funny, you know, uh, I did this talk a long time ago where I quoted Timothy Leary, who had, he was doing these talks at Berkeley, and a girl had just had her first big psychedelic experience. And she got up and she said, Timothy, Dr. Leary, you know, I had the experience and I saw light and I understand we're all connected, now what? What do I do? And he said, find the others. <laughs> and 
I gave a talk where I explained that, and then Scott Hefferman was at that talk, and that week he came up with the idea to do Meetup. And, and the idea of Meetup was let's do something that's like Yahoo Groups, except the purpose of the net is to get people connecting in real places offline, you know, to, to facilitate the real world rather than replace it. Right? The only people who want the net to replace the real world are people who don't mean us any good. Right? These are people who want to just market us to death and, and, and monetize our social graph and make our behaviors more predictable. That's what big data is for. They use big data of our past to advertise the future to us that we haven't yet realized we're going to live. Right? And turn us from 80% probability of going down that lifestyle path to 90%. So they're trying to reduce anomalous, strange, unique human behavior in order to amp up their returns. Technology should be for the opposite purpose, right? Technology should be, should get us together and get out of the way. Because the, we're only here for so much time. Let's say you got 100 years. What do you want to do with that? What do you want to do with that? Do you want to do that with Google Cardboard? Or do you want to do that with, it's 3D already. It's, you know. Thank you Excellent. So much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming here. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons non-commercial 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.